of a city boy by the name of Morris who moves to the country and he bought a donkey from an old farmer. It says the farmer agreed for $100 he paid for the donkey and including that price was delivery to the city boy's new farm location. So the farmer agreed to deliver the donkey the next day. Well, the next day the farmer drives up and says, well, I'm sorry, but I've got some bad news for you. The do- this donkey here up and died on my way over here. So Morris said, well, then just give me my $100 back. And the farmer said, well, sorry, I can't do that. I, I spent your $100 last night. So Morris thought for a second. He said, okay, well, then just drop the donkey off in the barn. He goes, well, what are you going to do with the dead donkey? He said, well, I'm going to go ahead and I'll raffle him off. He said, you're going to raffle off a dead donkey? He goes, yeah, I'll just raffle him off. So drops him off. About a month later, he runs into Morris and the farmer, his curiosity is getting the better of him, said, how'd your raffle turn out? He said, it turned out great. He goes, I sold uh, 500 tickets, two bucks a piece, netted $998. He said, well, did anybody get upset when they found out the donkey was dead? He goes, yeah, the winner sure did. He he said, well, what did you do? He goes, I gave him his two bucks back. (laughs) Don't be trying this at home now. Some of you are thinking, hey, Christmas money. But the interesting thing about the story is it reminds us that uh, quite often in life we're sold a bill of goods. You know, that proves to be less than what was originally advertised. You know, sometimes, such as in the case of our donkey salesman, the product or philosophy is uh, intentionally misrepresented and there's even fraud involved. So other times, you know, the seller or the promoter believes their pitch only to eventually be proven wrong. And all that to say this. Many people today have bought into the idea that being religious is all that it takes to be right with God and eventually to get into heaven. Now the problem with being religious that I have seen and experienced in my life and in my conversations with others is that the definition of religious varies from person to person. Because I'm sure some of you have heard of people who are religious, then you've heard of people who are very religious, then you've heard of people who are extremely religious. You know, it's like all over the board. Religious, very religious, extremely religious, Different definitions, but really, in essence, the same problem. One such person who bought into this idea was a man by the name of John Wesley, who believed that being religious was all that it would take to be right with God. In fact, Wesley's early life suggested he would certainly one day eventually grow up to be a man of God. His father was a pastor. His unusually godly mother was named Susanna. And after a privileged upbringing, we're told that John attended Charter House in Oxford and became double professor of Greek and logic at Lincoln College. He also served as his father's assistant in his church and was ordained by that church. It says while he was at Oxford, he was a member of what was called the Holy Club, a group that was so nicknamed by the other students because they seriously attempted to cultivate their spiritual lives, somehow trying to be more pleasing to God in everything that they did says that finally he even accepted an invitation from the Society of the Propagation of the Gospel to become a missionary to the American Indians in Georgia, where he writes in his diary that he utterly failed. Forced to return to England, he wrote these words in his journal. I went to America to convert the Indians, 
But oh, who shall convert me? Though religious, very religious, or extremely religious, depending on your definition of his life, John Wesley experienced what all religious people who are truly seeking God encounter, and that is utter frustration and a sense of doom or failure, that even on our best days, it's still not good enough. We'll come back to John Wesley in a minute, but today in our ongoing study through the book of Acts, we raise and will address this following question, and that is simply this. Religion, is it good enough? Is it good enough to make us right with God? The person who says, I'm a religious guy or religious gal, the person that we look at and say, they're very religious, they go to church every week, man. You know, or they read a Bible or they do this or that. I mean, we run into that all the time. It's like, wow, he or she's religious or very religious or extremely religious. Is it enough to make one right with God being religious? Is it religious or very religious or extremely religious? I mean, is it one or the other or which is it that if religion is enough, do you have to be at one level, the other or the highest level and how do we determine that and who defines that? And if religion is enough, then what religion? Does it matter which one you choose or which one you pick? Or does God have a completely different plan? If you've got your Bibles, turn with me in the book of Acts to Acts chapter 18, starting with verse 22, where we find this question answered very clearly. Religion, is it enough to make a person right with God? Acts 18, let's start with uh, verse 22. It says, And when he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and went down to Antioch, speaking of Paul. And having spent some time there, he departed and passed successfully through the Galatian region and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now a certain Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man, came to Ephesus, and he was mighty in the Scriptures. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit. He was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, being acquainted only with the baptism of John. It says, and and when he went and he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wanted to go across to Achaia, the brethren encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he had arrived, he helped greatly those who had believed through grace. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. And it came about that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper country, came to Ephesus and found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, No, we have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is, in Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Spirit came upon them, and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. And there were in all about twelve men. 
Before we can address our question, religion, is it enough, some background is necessary in order to have a better understanding of the passage. If you recall from our last meeting, Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Priscilla and Aquila were actively sharing the gospel with all who would listen in the city of Corinth. After a period of at least 18 months, we're told, uh, Paul left Corinth, and with Priscilla and Aquila, they went to Ephesus. We see that in chapter 18, verse 19, they came to Ephesus, we're told, and he left them there. Now he himself entered the synagogue, reasoning with the Jews. And so they arrive in the city of Ephesus, and it's important to understand the historical context and the background in order to get a good feel for what was going on in the city of Ephesus at the time. Ephesus had a population of over 300,000 people. It had become the capital city city of the Roman province of Asia, and it was an important commercial center. It had a large harbor, and because of that, there was a lot of trade and activity business-wise that was going on there. And it was also a very religious place, because in it was built the temple to Diana, which was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. So not only did you have a place of tremendous business activity, but you had a tourist attraction as well. People came there to see this great temple that was built to this goddess by the name of Artemis or Diana. And in fact, the, the dimensions of this te- temple were incredible. It measured 418 feet by 239 feet and boasted 100 columns that stood over 50 feet high. And in this temple was a sacred enclosure of this image of Diana that was supposed to have come, and we'll read when we get later on in this passage, supposed to have been sent from God from heaven and dropped upon the earth. Many historians believe it was a meteorite, and they took this rock and they fashioned it into this idol that they had made. But people from all over the world, that world, were coming to see this, this goddess of Diana, this great goddess of, of love. And, it was, and uh, since Artemis was a fertility goddess, cultic prostitution was a very important part of their religious exercise. If you remember when we talked about the city of Corinth, that the Acro Corinth and the temple above the city, they had a temple that also contained 1,000 prostitutes, and part of their religious exercise was cultic prostitution or sexual immorality. That's why as Paul wrote to, this, uh, to the believers in Corinth in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 6 and 7, he warned of sexual immorality and what it does to, to humanity and the destruction that's involved in it. And so he warned them that it wasn't God's way. But anyway, this is what was going on at that particular time. And there were many religious people who lived in Ephesus who part of their religion was to practice cultic prostitution, to have sex with an individual and act as if it was an offering to their goddess and even pay in exchange for that particular, for, for that particular act. And so when you think about it, when you think, well, at that day, people defined them as being very religious or somewhat religious, or extremely religious, that they would go to such extremes in order to please what they believed to be a god or their goddess or whatever it was. We live in a similar day-to-day where people's definition of what religion is or what religious is is defined from person to person. As I mentioned, a person who goes to church every week to some person is an extremely religious person. A person who gives money to, you know, whatever organization that they belong to is, to some people, an extremely religious person. To some, they're just a religious person. To others, they're very religious. It all just depends on where you are as you define what you see in the life of another person. Well, in Ephesus, these people were, to some, religious, some very religious, some extremely religious. It depends on what your viewpoint was. When Paul departed from Ephesus for Jerusalem, as we see here, he left his friends Aquila and Priscilla behind to carry on in the witness of the synagogue, going into the synagogues and trying to convince the Jews that Jesus Christ is indeed the promised one of God, the Messiah, or the Savior of the world. It was in this particular place that they encountered an extraordinary man. 
an extremely religious guy by all definitions, who very much like John Wesley and all religious people seeking God was still missing something in his life. In fact, his life can be summarized in the following statement. And that is this. Apollos was a man who was religious, but according to God's definition, he was still lost. He was extremely religious, very religious, somewhat religious. But you know what? The problem was he was still lost. And in this particular passage that we're looking at, in this particular man's life, God addresses the question that people have today in a very relevant way. Is being religious enough to make one right with God? The person who practices their religion of whatever kind it is, even on their best days, is it enough or is there still something missing or lacking in their life? So as we look at this gentleman by the name of Apollos, we learn a lot from him. And uh, we're going to examine his life one step at a time if you've got it there. Notice the first thing that we're introduced to. It says that, first of all, Apollos is uh, was now a certain man, and this is in verse 24, a certain Jew named Apollos was an Alexandrian. So first of all, we got the fact that Apollos is Jewish. He is also an Alexandrian, which means that his family reveals to us that he was born in Alexandria, which was the second most important city in the Roman Empire, that his family was part of what was called the Diaspora, which referred in some cases to the voluntary moving of Jews to lands other than their own. According to Zondervan, we read this about the Diaspora. It says that the primary cause of Diaspora was the deportation of the Jews into exile by their enemies. Oftentimes what happened, for example, the Assyrians took Jews from Samaria uh, to the east in 722 B.C. The Babylonians took some from Jerusalem as, part of, as early as 586 B.C. And later Pompey took Jews to Rome as slaves. And these people were moved from one place to another, oftentimes because their enemies would take them or because they would overthrow their land, take them back into captivity. Sometimes, however, being an industrious people, they went voluntarily to other lands where their opportunities in business and also trade were better than the area that they lived in. And so the increasing population in Israel kept uh, pressure on the people there to look elsewhere to large cities. We, I speak to people all the time in this particular area, especially Southern California, who have relocated from somewhere else. You know, if you live here three years or longer, you're native. I mean, but the, but the reality of it is you speak to people all the time. Linda and I moved to California for education opportunities and better, hopefully, what we found out to be better employment opportunities or a way to make a living for our family. We run into that all the time. When we were in Maui, we spoke to people that were there, and oftentimes what you hear is, well, you know, I'm only going to be here three months or six months. It's really hard to make a living. Now that I'm getting it out of my system, you know, I've got to go back and I've got to find a real job and I've got to get, you know, get on with my life and become a responsible adult. Wah. You know, it's... it's it's just a really sad thing, you know. It's this responsible adult thing that people try to avoid at all costs. But, um, but you find that people move all over the place. Well, what happened in this case is that the Jews left. Many of them left the area that they were in looking for better opportunities for their family. They relocated. And Alexandria, which brings us to Alexandria, Egypt had one of the largest, if not the largest, concentrations of Jewish people outside of Israel in New Testament times. The population of Alexandria was 600,000, making it twice as big as Ephesus. And of those 600,000 people, 25% or 150,000 of them uh, had Jewish backgrounds. 
And so Apollos, a Greek name, was still Jewish by heritage and descendancy. And the city was founded by Alexander the Great in 331 BC. It was named after, he named it after himself. And I guess if you found, find a city or found a city, that you have every right to do that. So, you know, Chucksburg, somewhere down the line, we'll see how it all works out. Uh, but, um, but Alexander found, he, he founded the city, named it after himself. It had one of the greatest universities in the world, one of the greatest libraries. It had over 700,000 volumes. And in fact, we're going to find out that the Apollos was very religious because he was well-versed in the Old Testament. He understood the Old Testament because in Alexandria, the Hebrew Old Testament was translated into Greek. And it's called the Septuagint. And this is where it took place. So this man with Jewish roots, with a Greek name, who had moved from one place to another with his family, still was involved in the worship of the God of Israel because there was a very active temple that was there, understood the Old Testament and had a tremendous understanding of the Old Testament because even this city had translated it into Greek. So he not only could speak Greek, he could speak Hebrew. He was a very educated person. And, you know, when you read through the Bible, oftentimes you read through it, and I don't know about you, but oftentimes you read and you kind of just go right through it. And no one could ever believe that I could take ten minutes on one word. But you people who have been here long enough know that anything is possible. So, but anyway, he was a Jew. He had a Greek name. He knew the Old Testament well. It was here that the Septuagint was translated. There was a temple. It was a hub of religious activity. It was a city that the early church ended up moving its headquarters from Jerusalem and Antioch into Alexandria. It was a key place. Athanasius and Tertullian and Augustine, three great men of the early church, all found Alexandria to be their home. And the bottom line of all of it is, is that through this education that he got, the Bible tells us that he was an eloquent man. He's a gifted speaker, orator. He understood what it was that he was teaching. He understood and had a great knowledge of it. He did it in a very eloquent way, a gifted way. And the Bible says that he was a man mighty in the scriptures. Mighty in the scriptures. John Brodus, who was one of the founders of the Southern Baptist Seminary, was lecturing his class just nine days before he died when he paused and said this to his students. Gentlemen, if this was the last time I should ever be permitted to address you, I would feel amply repaid for consuming the whole hour, endeavoring to impress upon you these two things, true piety and like Apollos, to be men mighty in the scriptures. And as he walked around the room, he continued to say, mighty in the scriptures, mighty in the in the scriptures, mighty in the scriptures. And he made an impression on his students that they were to become men who were godly men, mighty in the scriptures. The church needs more men who are mighty in the scriptures and less inclined to human philosophy and psychology. Mighty in the scriptures. As Paul said to Timothy, preach the word, in season and out. The word of God is living and sharper and active in any two-edged sword, able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. See, we can fool one another, but none of us can fool God who knows the heart. Mighty in the scriptures. The word of God as it's taught, we're told, will never go out and come back empty. God will reach us just as we are when the word of God is taught, for the word is the truth of God. 
Sanctify them, Jesus prayed of believers, that they would be sanctified or separated in God's truth. And he said that God's word is truth. God's word is the weapon. The sword of the spirit is the word of God. See, God's word cuts through all the rest of everything, the, the smoke and the mirrors and all that we want to struggle with. You know what? God says, hey, you know what? But I'm not buying any of it. This is truth. This is a reality. Reprove, rebuke, correct, train in righteousness, teach truth. God knows our hearts. He knows our condition. He knows what's wrong with us. And he offers a way to be right with God. Is it religion that makes us right with God? Well, that's what this passage addresses. Is that enough? Or is there more? See, mighty in the scriptures. Every one of us needs to be mighty in the scriptures because we are told that we are to sanctify the Lord Jesus in our heart, always being ready to give a defense or an answer for the hope that is within us. What is it that you believe? Why is it that you believe it? So that you can articulate that in an eloquent manner in some ways with the people that God brings into your life. Why do you go to church? Can you even answer the basic questions? You know, many of us are, well, I'm sorry, I can't go golfing with you Sunday. i got to go to church. Now, I don't know if you realize that that's not exactly a great sell on the idea of going to church. Sorry, I can't. got to go to church. And they look at you like, wow, man, I'm glad I don't have to go to church. Now, if you come across a, a different way, man, you know, I'd love to go golfing. Let's go during the week. But, man, I, I do something on Sundays I can't, I can't miss. Really? What's that? Man, I can't wait to go to church. It's like, you'd be the first person that ever met that ever said that. Can you imagine how exciting that would be? And you know what? And if you give me ten bucks, I'll bring you with me. That'd be great. That'd be great. Now, for 20, pick you up. Mighty in the scriptures. Now, notice also that it said that he also received formal instruction. The term that's used is in the way of the Lord. He received formal instruction in the way of the Lord. Now, that's an Old Testament phrase that has to do with just knowing about God and how God does things and what God expects of people. And it had to do with in the way of the Lord. He was formally instructed in God's ways. You know, we talk about training up a child in the way that he should go. Well, the book of Proverbs is what way is that? Well, it's God's way. Well, if we're to go God's way, what way is that? Where are we supposed to be going? Where are we heading? What, what does he want us to do? What does he require of our life? And, and it says, hey, hey, in God's way. He was instructed in the way of the Lord. And he also combined, think about this. He was eloquent. He was mighty in the scriptures. He had a knowledge of who God was. He had a knowledge of what God demanded of humanity. He had a knowledge of all of these things. And you know what? That in itself wasn't enough because it says he was also fervent in the spirit. I like that. He was fervent in the spirit. It meant this. He was fired up for the things of God. Literally, the word is defined as boiling or boiling hot. The guy was on fire for God. Have you ever met a person on fire for God? I'll tell you what. If you are on fire for God, you will turn your world upside down. If everything that you do in your relationship with God, you do begrudgingly because you have to do it, that will never attract nor excite anybody to the things of God. On fire for God. This guy was fired up. 
He was in the forefront wherever he went. He was fired up and couldn't wait to tell people about the God that he had come to know and the way that he had come to know him. He was fired up. In fact, I like what um, one man wrote. He said, of Alexander White of Edinburgh. says, A.J. Gossip once went to hear, but sat where he could see the faces of those watching White. When he frowned, they frowned. When he smiled, they smiled. They were so absorbed in the message, so one one with him that they acted unconsciously as a perfect mirror of his every mood. The guy was on fire for God, and the people that were there sensed it, and they knew it. And when he smiled, they smiled. When he frowned, they frowned. When he cried, they cried. I mean, they were just into it, man. They never looked at their watches. When he stopped, they went, I can't believe you're done. More. That's like how you guys, every week you do that. He's like, more, don't quit now, please. We brought our lunches, it's okay. You know, they were fired up. And, and he was fired up. And Apollos was this man. He was fired up. He was eloquent. He was mighty in the scriptures. He knew the things of God. He was fired up. He was boiling hot. Man, he was on fire, but there was only one problem. He did not fully know Christ. That was his problem. He taught accurately the things, if you'll notice here, in verse 25. He taught accurately, speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus. The only problem was, he was only familiar with the things concerning Jesus up to the baptism of John. And it's important that we recognize and understand what the baptism of John was all about. He taught accurately what he knew. Based on his limited knowledge, he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus. He didn't have a full understanding of the gospel because he was acquainted only with the baptism of John. Now, in order to understand that, we need to recognize, well, what was the baptism of John? If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 1. While you're turning to John 1, the words in Luke chapter 1 tell us that In verse 16 and verse 17, that John the Baptist's purpose says that he will turn back many of the sons of Israel to the Lord their God. And it is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to return the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. In John chapter 1. We find the same thing. It tells us and and explains to us what John's role was or what his ministry was all about. In verse 19, we read, and this is the witness of John, when the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask, who are you? They're saying, you know, who do you think you are? You got all these people following you. You're calling them out to the wilderness. You got a great following of people. It's like, you know, who do you think you are? Who are you? Explain to us who you are. And he confessed and did not deny, and he confessed... Well, if any of you think that I'm the Savior, the Messiah, the one who's been promised, I'm not him. So let's get that straight right off the bat. I'm not who people think that I am. So they asked him, what then? Who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, no, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. They said to him, then who are you? So that we may give an answer to those who sent us. What do you have to say about yourself? Explain yourself. He said, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him and said to him, Then why then are you baptizing if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, saying, I baptize in water. But among you stands one whom you do not know. And it is he who comes after me, 
the thong of whose sandal I am not even worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who has a higher rank than me, for he existed before me. He said, I'm the one that, that God's word tells would come before. And I will declare to man to repent and get ready for the coming of the Savior. The repentance or baptism of John was one of repentance. Repentance simply means to turn from sin and turn back to God. To ask God to forgive you for what you've done. And turn to him. And be baptized, which was a water baptism. And it had this to do with simply being baptized as an outward sign of a fact that in your heart you want to be right with God. And what he was saying was, I'm not the savior of the world, but the one who's coming after me, I will be pointing to him when he comes. He's the one. Now, he said that he who's coming after me, I'm not worthy to untie his sandals because he existed. He has a higher rank than me and he existed before me. Now, if you know anything from your, your Bible teaching or reading, you'll know that John the Baptist was actually six months older from a human standpoint than Jesus Christ. So he's saying to people that even though I'm, I was born first on this earth, I was six months older, he was still greater than me because he existed before me because he always existed. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. He existed. And he, in the beginning, from the very beginning, Jesus Christ always existed because he's God. And in human flesh, he took on human flesh in order to accomplish a task, which we will discuss in a minute. But the reality of it was, is that here comes God, his son, the savior of the world. Stop following me and now follow him. Notice what happened. It says, and I didn't recognize him, but in order that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. John bore witness, saying, I have beheld the Spirit descending as a dove out of the heaven, and he remained upon him, and I did not recognize him. But he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is truly the Son of God. Again, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples. He looked upon Jesus as he walked and said, Behold the Lamb of God. And notice this. And the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. He did a good job explaining to people what his role was. His role was, never get too hung up on me, because all that I'm here to do is to point you to the one who can save you from your sin. When he said, behold the Lamb of God, it is he who takes away the sin of the world, his disciples immediately began at that point to follow Jesus. It was like a tag team, so to speak, not to lower to, to that extreme, but it was kind of like, hey, you know what, I did my job, now here comes the one whom we will all follow. The baptism of John was a baptism, a water baptism for repentance of sin. Apollos' message was not inaccurate or insincere, it was just incomplete. Let me give you an illustration. On Friday, I get a phone call at the office from a trucking company who was trying to make a delivery to one of our job sites. So the gentleman that's on the other end said, you know, I can't find this street. He said, I, I'm, I'm in San Clemente. I followed the map book as far as it will take me, but I can't find the street where this job is. He said, I have gone as far as I can go. Well, the map book wasn't up to date that he had, and from where he was, I was able to take him to where he needed to go. 
See, Apollos' map book wasn't up to date. He had taken people as far as he had gone. He had taken people with him as far as he could go. But the map book wasn't complete. And so that's why we see this drastic change in what's happening here. When you go back to Acts chapter 18, notice what it says. He began to speak out boldly in the synagogue. But, when you see the word but, it means, well, there's a problem here. There's a change here, change in directions. He was speaking accurately about the baptism of, uh, speaking accurately about Jesus as far as he knew. But the problem was, he didn't know enough. Notice what happened. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. More accurately. Well, what was more accurately? See, it was at this time and at this place that Apollos' religious training led him into an intimate relationship with God. You say, well, how did that occur? Well, think about it. He had already recognized that he was a sinner. He had already recognized he wasn't perfect. He already recognized that, you know, on his best day, he was still falling short of God's standard of perfection. God had given the law, he had violated the law. One way or the other, he had violated it. He already knew. Apollos already knew that he wasn't perfect and that he was, as God says, a sinner. Every person needs to recognize and understand that first before they can move on in their relationship with God. He then repented of his sin, which was turning from sin, turning to God, and demonstrate that with the baptism of John, he was baptized a water baptism. You follow me so far? The only thing that was missing, and the most important thing that was missing in his relationship with God, is that he had never responded with faith to the finished work of Christ. Aquila and Priscilla took him aside and said, Listen, we need to explain to you why Jesus came and what he did. He took on the form of humanity, being told being obedient to the form, in the form and appearance of a human being, obedient to God so that he can seek and to save that which was lost, meaning that his mission and his purpose was to go to Calvary and die on a cross for the sins of the world. The whole sacrificial system was leading them to understand that there had to be the shedding of blood for the remission of sin. Jesus came to die upon a cross for the sins of the world, sufficient for all, but only applicable to those who believe. Three days later, he was raised from the dead, conquering death, conquering sin, making the claim that God made for him and that he is truly the one and only Savior of the world. They took him aside and explained more accurately that the, what he had missing in his life was he had never come to receive the Lord Jesus Christ as his personal Savior. He had never come to believe that Jesus came to die for him. He had never believed that he rose from the dead. And the reason he never believed it was he didn't understand it because he didn't hear it. But when he heard it, guess what? He responded with faith to the finished work of Christ. He received him as his Savior. And it goes to show you that those who are truly seeking God, God will be, make himself very clear to you because he's not far from any one of us. Those who are seeking God will find him because God is seeking us. Those who are seeking religion or an excuse to be able to continue to live any way that they want to live and try to somehow or another couch it all in, I'm a religious person, God's not mocking. Those who live to the light that God has given us, God will then further the picture and give us the directions the rest of the way. That truck driver drove to a location in San Clemente as far as he can get, and when he got there, he said, I don't have the directions to get to the finish line. How do I get there? 
For every religious person, God says this. Your religion may have given you a sensitivity toward God. Your religion may have given you an understanding that there is a God. Your religion may have done a lot of good things for you, but you know what? It'll never get you home. It'll never take you across the finish line. Only faith in the Lord Jesus Christ can do that. Is religion enough? No. It is not enough. It was never designed to be enough. It was only designed to be a road map. The Bible says that the laws of God were to be a tutor to lead people to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Apollos was a religious man, fervent, boiling over in his understanding of what he knew. But I'll tell you why we know he was seeking God. Because he was humble to the point of listening to a couple of tent makers explain to him more accurately how to come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He was humble. He was an eloquent speaker, a gifted speaker, a great orator. He was a knowledgeable man. And this couple who came to him, these leather workers, these tent workers afterwards said, man, we're excited. But you know what? There's one thing that you're lacking. You don't know the whole story. And when he heard, he received the gospel. He trusted in Christ as a savior. And there's several lessons that stand out as I try to put all this together for an application. And that is, Don't ever miss that religion can only take you so far. It's a start, but it's not enough. It's a start, but it's not enough. Only faith in the Lord Jesus Christ can finish that journey, can make one right with God, can guarantee that one will spend an eternity in the presence of God. Only faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and not in any religion or in any organization. Those who are truly seeking God will find Him. The Bible says, for He is not far from any of us. He's come to seek and to save that which is lost. And those who live to the light that they're given, God will complete the picture. See, He believed, but He had never received. He believed that Jesus was the Savior. But he had never received him because he didn't understand that's what needed to be done. For years in my life, I was a religious guy. Sometimes extremely religious, sometimes less than religious. But always feeling a sense of being somewhat religious. Believed in God, even heard about Jesus. Had heard that he died on the cross, heard that he rose from the dead. And I believed that. But then I realized afterwards that the Bible says that even the devil believes. And the demons believe, but they shudder at the thought. See, the devil knows that Jesus Christ is God's only way of salvation for man. The demons often said to him, what do we have to do with you now, son of God, holy one, savior of the world? They believe, but that belief's not enough to make you right with God. I believed for a long time. And you know what? And like Apollos, I had never never heard until someone asked the question, when did you become a Christian? And like so many people, I went to church, baptized as a baby, confirmed private education, doctrinal teaching, this, that, and the other. I was like, but that didn't answer the question. When did you become a Christian? Well, how does that happen? It happens when you respond with faith to the finished work of Christ. 
that he personally died for you, that he rose from the dead for you, when did you receive him as your Lord and Savior? And I had never, until that point, ever been confronted with that question. I didn't know there was more than just having to believe something in order to be right with God. If we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness, but with his mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. See, Apollos, that day, believed in the Lord Jesus Christ as his personal Savior. And we know that's the case because look at the result of it. When he wanted to go across to Achaia, the brethren encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him, saying, this man truly is a believer. He truly is a son of God. He truly is a Christian. Welcome him. And it says that when he got there, he helped them greatly. How did he help him greatly? Because he taught the word of God to him, and he knew the final, the final leg of the journey could only be made through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and him alone. He had the complete picture. He helped them greatly. He helped every religious person that he ever came in contact with by saying your religion is not enough. And it reminds me that we need to be like Apollos and Aqu uh, Priscilla and Aquila. We need to be people who are sensitive and gentle and loving and speaking the truth when talking to religious people who are deceived or bought into the idea that their religion is enough. By saying, hey, praise God, you're a religious person. And if you're a truly religious person seeking God, then as I share what I'm about to share with you, you will embrace this truth and welcome Christ as your Savior. But if you're looking for an excuse, you don't want to hear that. And I'm going to tell you something about me. I found out in hindsight I wasn't really seeking God because when I heard the gospel for the first time that I needed to receive Christ, I said, oh, that's interesting. Thanks for sharing it, but no thank you. It was over a year later that I finally had come to the point where I said, Lord, I need you. And I believe what, what was told, that you died for me, that you rose from the dead. And according to the word of God, that day, that moment in time, February 16, 1978, I was born again from above. Not by my will, but by God's will. Washed, regenerated by the Spirit of God. See, John baptized outwardly with water. But he said, there's one who's coming after me that when you trust in him, he will baptize you by the Holy Spirit from within. That God will write his laws upon your heart. They will no longer be something that you read externally in a book and try to follow as religions do. But it will be something that God will change your heart. He'll change your mind. He'll transform you to want to be obedient to him. And it comes from inside, not from outside. See, Apollos was recommended to the churches, and he greatly helped them. And you know why? Because he taught all that who believed through grace. Notice that, all who believed through grace. It's by grace you've been saved through faith, and not of yourselves. It is a gift from God, so that none of us can ever boast. No one will ever work their way into heaven. God's done it all. Jesus Christ paid the price. He died on the cross. He rose three days later. And all who believe in him, the Bible says to them, he gives the privilege to be called children of God to those who believe in his name. Born again from above. Apollos became one of the great ambassadors for God. Luther believes that he may even have been the author of the book of Hebrews. His life shows us that we can only lift others to the level on which we ourselves live. 
He was a Jew. He was an Alexandrian. He was learned. He was eloquent. He was on fire. He was mighty in the scriptures. He was accurate in the teaching that he had. He was bold in his preaching. But he can only take the people as far as he himself had come and not one step further. There are a whole bunch of people in churches today who have only got so far. And one day, unless they come to faith in Christ, they will be among the crowd that say to Jesus, But Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these things in your name? And he's going to say, Be gone from me, for I never met you. There are many here who have grown up in a church. Your parents have gone to church. Your grandparents have gone to church. You have gone to church. Some come from backgrounds like mine, where you were baptized as babies. You did all kind of external things. You went to vacation Bible school, and you went to this camp or that camp. And you did all the things that people in churches do. But the only thing that you haven't done and that you're still lacking is that you have never received Christ as your Savior. You believed all the stuff in your head, but you have never submitted your will to His. There's a point where you've got to surrender and recognize your sin. Repent, turn from it, and turn to God and receive the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. Now, kind of as a wrap-up of all of this, for those who still think that religion is enough, we're introduced to 12 men who were baptized, but still lost. I run into people all the time who are just like me. Hey, I was baptized, I was this, that, the other thing. I, you know, did that and whatever. You know, I've done all the things that people told me to do, but you know what? Here's what the Bible says. You know what? If you haven't trusted in Christ, you're still lost. Notice in verse 1 of chapter 19. It says, it came about that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper country, came to Ephesus and found some disciples. It's important to understand and recognize that the term disciple doesn't always mean believer. There were disciples of the Pharisees. There were disciples of John the Baptist. There were even disciples of Jesus Christ, whom the Bible says that as a result of this difficult teaching by Jesus, where he said that you have to eat of my body or you have to partake of me or accept my sacrifice on your behalf, it says that many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him any longer. So they weren't believers by the sense that the Bible defines a believer. They were learners or they were followers of another person. And that's important to recognize and understand. When Paul comes to him, he says, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And the reason that he asked the question is so that he could understand where they were spiritually. And also to make them aware of what their need was that they didn't even know they had at that point. And they, and they said to him, no, we have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. So no, we haven't been baptized in the Holy Spirit. So what does Paul do? He preaches Christ. He tells them about Jesus. He tells them to receive Jesus as their Savior, and when we receive Jesus, we are baptized by the Holy Spirit. No one ever in Scripture tells a person to receive the Holy Spirit. We are told to receive Jesus Christ as our Savior, and when we do, we are baptized by the Holy Spirit, washed or regenerated, Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 5, born again, Jesus said in John chapter 3, from above, from God. We receive the Spirit of God as a down payment, Ephesians chapter 1, when we trust in Christ. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, which we've already learned about, telling the people, look what he told them, to believe in him who was coming after him, that is in Jesus. Believe in Jesus. When they heard this, notice, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. I meet those who say, but I was baptized as a child, why do I need to be baptized again as an adult? 
Well, because as a child, you didn't understand that Jesus Christ died for your sins. You didn't understand that he rose from the dead. And you hadn't received him as your Savior. If you have trusted in Christ as your Savior today, that baptism doesn't mean anything. That we now are baptized in order to identify with the fact that we have come to know Christ personally as our Savior. He was baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Bible says the Holy Spirit came upon them. And when they heard this, they were baptized. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, indicating fellowship or identity in the body of Christ, he laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. And there were in all 12 men, there was evidence that these men had been truly born again. What's the greatest evidence that you and I have come to faith in Christ? The Holy Spirit's presence in our life, testifying or bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The assurance and confidence that we have The Spirit of God bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. The Spirit of God convicts us of sin and righteousness and judgment. The Spirit of God reminds us of the teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ. As we study the Word of God, as we memorize Scripture, as we get into the Bible, you know, there are many times in my life where the Spirit of God will remind me of what that passage was, what that verse was, what that truth was, what that teaching was. His role in my life is a down payment that I've truly become born again according to the Word of God. Do you have that same assurance? Do you have that same confidence in your life? Does God's spirit bear witness with your spirit that if you died at this very moment, that you would be absent from the body and present with the Lord? You can't psych yourself up into believing that. Only God can give you that kind of assurance and confidence. When people around me were telling me I was okay based on everything else in the world, I would lay in bed at night and realize, man, I was scared to death to die because I didn't know what would happen to me. As I trusted in Jesus as my Savior and my Lord, and the Spirit of God indwells me, I have an assurance and a confidence. And it's not based on teaching the Bible study. It's not based on doing good works. It's not based on anything other than the fact that Jesus Christ did it all for me, and I believe Him and I trust in Him implicitly with my eternity. And if we trust Him with our eternity, can we not start start trusting Him with our temporary? Can you trust Him in your relationship at home? Can you trust Him with your children? Can you trust Him in your business? Can you trust Him with your finances? Can you trust Him with your health issues? Can you trust Him in every area? How can you trust Him in your eternity and not trust Him in your temporary? Trust in Him today. In closing, let's get back to John Wesley. Remember his words of frustration? I went to America to convert the Indians, but oh, who shall convert me? But not all was lost, because in his earlier travels to America, he had encountered some Moravians whose living faith deeply impressed him. Says So upon his return to London, he sought out one of the leaders, and to use Wesley's words was, quote, clearly convinced of unbelief, of the want of that faith whereby alone we are saved. He says, on the evening of May 24th, 1738, Wesley wrote these words in his journal. He said, in the evening, I went very unwillingly to a society in Altersgate Street where one was reading Luther's preface to the Epistle of Romans. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt that I did trust in Christ and Christ alone for my salvation. And an assurance was given me that had been lacking all of my life that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and of death. 
that warming, that assurance, came from the presence of the Holy Spirit of God and the life of a man who had repented of his sin and responded with faith to the finished work of Christ. He had believed in his heart, and God saved him from his sin. Do you have that same warmth, that same assurance? Do you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are truly a child of God? Are you hanging all your hope on your religion? Religion's not enough. Never was, never will be. Only faith in the Lord Jesus Christ can you find forgiveness. And will you find one day, absent from the body, you'll be present with the Lord. For it's by grace we've been saved through faith and not of ourselves. It is a gift from God available to all who will receive that as we come to faith in Christ, not one of us can ever brag before God that we worked our way into heaven. By grace, you've been saved through faith. And the question that you have to ask yourself is the one that even Wesley asked of himself. When? When did I come to trust in Christ and in him alone for salvation? He said it was May 24th, 1738, when he came to trust in Christ and Christ alone. My concern is for those of us who aren't really sure You're hearing the truth. And God says it's time to respond. Trust in Him today. December 9th, year 2001. Thank God for the religion that led you to Him. But give greater praise to the Savior who can offer forgiveness. Today is the day of the Lord. If you hear His voice speaking, trust in Him today. The Lord Jesus Christ as the only Savior of God for the forgiveness of sin. Believe in your heart that he died for you and that he rose from the dead. And the Bible says, and you shall be saved. Father, thank you that the road map is complete leading us to salvation. God, I've often thought that the best person to ask for directions is somebody who has been there or knows the way. Who better to ask for directions to heaven than Jesus Christ himself, the Lord and Savior, who came from heaven to earth, who came to, from heaven to earth to show us the way to heaven. And in fact, he himself said that he was the way. He is the way, the only way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes under, under the Father but through me. God, I pray for those who have been confused and bought a bill of goods only to be proven that religion is not enough. That a relationship with God is the only thing. The only way is by trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, his death and his resurrection for the forgiveness of sin. And we just thank you and praise you that we can know you in a personal way through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. God, I pray for all those today who are confused and as you make it clear to them that they, like Apollos and even these 12 men, would respond with faith to the finished work of Christ today and now in this place so that they can know that assurance that comes only from the presence of the Spirit of God in their life, that they can know that they are children of God to those who believe in his name. And we just praise you and thank you in Christ's wonderful name. Amen.